to make sure. Yeah, there we go. That sounds a little better, doesn't it? We may go in and out, in and out on our volume today. Uh, technical difficulties as always. If the devil gets in anything at a church, it's always the sound system. No matter how much money you put in it, we can't throw him off our trail. He always is a step ahead of us when it comes to stuff like that. But we've got our very best sitting back there at the board, so they'll try to keep us going. And by the way, uh, you don't have a soft-spoken preacher anyway, huh? <laughs> so 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we are. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, you guys know that we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians for a while, and every passage gets more difficult and more difficult. And Jerry Newman always reminds me, hey, you're the one that chose this book. So it's nobody's fault but mine. So here we go. Find ourselves in deep water today, maybe not in deep trouble as we look at this. But nonetheless, let's give it our best whirl. We're going to start in verse number 9. We left off in verse 8 last time. So notice what Paul says to this church that was just laden with a ton of problems. In verse number 9 he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Anybody find themselves in that list? Look at verse number 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Well, the last time we were together we looked at the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 under the guise of cultural Christianity. And we said that cultural Christianity is really what is crippling the church in the United States of America today. Cultural Christianity is that condition that ensues when our authority is not God's Word but our culture. And we do things simply because it's culturally appropriate rather than biblically mandated. Uh, someone asked me when I left the pastorate on the East Coast to go to the mission field, uh, one of my more thinking members said, Pastor Richie, I would like for you to try to summarize in one sentence your ministry here at First Baptist Church because we had been there about 12 years. And without hesitation, I don't know where this came from. After I said it, I said, wow. It kind of shocked me, but here, here's what I said. I said, without question, my ministry at First Baptist has been challenging accepted cultural norms and replacing them with the truth of God's Word. And I think that's what our ministry at Grace Church is still about. Because make no mistake about it, we live in a generation that claim to be Christians, but their Christianity is not biblical, but it is more cultural. It's what they've always heard, what they've always done, what mom and dad perpetuated, and what society seems to embrace. And if you look at this church down here in Corinth, man, they were problem-laden. They had a plethora of theological, ethical uh, you name it, they had every problem that you can possibly conceive. They had those problems for the very same reason. They did not take their cues. Their authority in life was not, thus saith the Lord, but it was culture. And you see, Paul again brings up this point today in verse number 9 when he says, Do you not know? Now how is it that we can know? Well, we know because as believers we are informed by God's holy and infallible Word. So if you don't know the Word, make no mistake about it, your brand of Christianity, if we can even call it that, is going to gravitate towards something that is informed by culture 
rather than something that is informed supernaturally by the Word of God. So today I want to speak to us uh, in that same vein and, 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 and I want to take these verses and unpack this subject. Kindly confronting our culture. Because that's what Paul is about in these verses. Notice what he does. There's a few things I want to highlight for you before we delve into it. Uh, notice that there are basically two directions he goes here. Verse 9 and 10 constitute one direction. And then verse 11 constitutes a 180 degree shift as he goes the other direction. In verse 9 and 10 he's talking about the unrighteous. And then in verse 11 he's talking about those who belong to the church at Corinth. So there is a strong contrast between believers and non-believers. Notice what else he does. In verse 9 and 10 it's all future oriented. He uses the future tense, will not inherit. But then when he comes to verse number 11, it's all past tense when he says, you were, you were, you were, you were. Now, as we look at this and unpack it, it really is a, a test for us because here's what I don't want us to be at Grace Church. I don't want us to be the church that's known by everything that they're against. Are you following me? I mean, isn't there enough of that today? I really want us to be known by what we're for. So it's easy to look at these sins and, you know, he gives a list of ten. It's easy for us to look at them and rail upon them out of self-righteousness, which is really a farce because none of us are self-righteous. We just think we may be better than somebody else who has this sin when I don't. You see what I'm saying? So I really don't want it to be about, about bashing people. I, don't want, to be, I want it, don't want it to be angry. But I want it to be something that we can look at and that we can do kindly. Because here's the reality. You and I are called to kindly confront our culture. We are to be change agents in a wicked and rotten society. And we can't be change agents if we're shouting at people and engaged in name-calling and hate-mongering and all of that type of stuff. Are you following me? I mean, we do too much of that. We eat up one another, let alone lost people. So how do we kindly confront our culture? And by the way, kindness is, is more than just, uh, it's more than just being courteous for a believer. Did you know that? It really is. It's, it's more than just good manners as a believer. Kindness is one of the flavors of the fruit of the Spirit. So if we are indeed walking in the Spirit, with the Spirit, being faithful to Christ, then here's the reality. We're going to be kind. I mean, read that list of, of, of the flavors of the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5, five and you'll find that kindness is one of them. So I don't want you walking away from here to think today thinking that we're beating up on anybody for a particular sin. I want us to walk away from this today saying, but by the grace of God, there go I. So how is it that you and I can kindly confront our culture, be salt and light, and be change agents in a society that is rapidly going south? I mean, would you agree that our grandparents would absolutely swallow their tongue if they saw some of the things that were happening right here in the Bible Belt of the United States of America today? I mean, it seems that things are speeding up and they're getting exponentially quicker as we seem to be racing towards certain judgment from God. It's this society, it's this culture in which God has placed you and I and said, you be salt and light. So how do we do that? How do we kindly confront our culture? It's a good question. Notice what this text says. There are two major movements. There are two directions. We want to look at it like that. Number one in verses 9 and 10. I think Paul is giving us this principle and telling us that we can kindly confront our culture with the realization of their pitiful condition. 
notice how he describes these people who are not part of the kingdom of Christ, those who are unbelievers. Uh, notice how he describes them. And by the way, their condition is pitiful. It really is. I'm reminded of an old southern gentleman who was indeed a scholar that Heather and I knew when we pastored on the East Coast. His name was Dr. Green. Dr. Green probably had three or four earned doctorates. I mean, he was a genius. But he was still a rough old southern gentleman. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if it crossed his mind, he said it. And Dr. Green worked for years. He was a, a chaplain and a counselor because one of his PhDs was in psychology. So he was uh, one of the ranking counselors in the California penal system. So he would go into jails, into high security prisons, and he said, you know, he said, after I did this for a while, he said, we noticed that, and, and my colleagues noticed that anytime there was a Muslim incarcerated, he would always ask for me. So one day, one of my colleagues cornered me and said, hey, I want to know why it is that you come in here and in a couple of years you got all the Muslims asking for you when we've been here for years and they never asked for us. And here's what Dr. Green said. Just one of those things that stuck with me. He said they would ask for me because I was nice to them. I was kind to them. Now here's where the old southern gentleman seemed to overshadow the scholar. He said... I figured the poor jokers are going to spend eternity in hell. The least they could have was a couple minutes of kindness from somebody here. <laughs> no matter what reason he was kind to them, he was kind to them. And I think what he's saying here is what Paul's saying, is that lost people today are really not to be fought, and they're really not to be yelled at. Do you notice that Paul is not on a stump here at Mars Hill preaching publicly to lost people? He's speaking in the church. So there's a difference when we speak here in the church because make no mistake against it, I'm against these sins, but more than that, I'm for the purity and the freedom of the people of God. So I almost said to Dr. John today, hey, let's not put this one out there on social media because I'm speaking to my church because I know that, the, that our society and our world will never accept what I'm saying here. And you know why they don't? Because they do not accept God's Word. Everything that I say, I'm going to say it because it's based and founded and rooted within the, within the infallible, authoritative Word of God. So you take the Word of God away and we don't have anything and everybody can do what's right in their own eyes and then you have no right to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. And that's where we live. But I'm preaching today to my church who does accept God's Word as authority and as infallible and as eternal, doesn't just apply to a first century congregation, but applies to all congregations in all places and all times. So what is it? How is it that we can do this? Well, we can kindly confront our culture with the realization of their pitiful, pitiful condition. Three things about their condition Paul highlights here. Number one, he says, they are satanically deceived. Look with me in verse number 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now remember this is a comparison. If he's telling the church don't be deceived and the comparison is between you and them, he's saying don't you be like them. And friends, I want to tell you, society today is deceived. Why is it that I had Sandra read that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Did you hear what that passage said? If our gospel is hidden, it's hidden from those who are perishing, who are deceived. They have been blinded by the God of this age. So don't expect lost society to see things eye to eye with us. Indeed, they cannot for several reasons. Number one, they've never been born again. Jesus said you can't even see the kingdom of God if you've never been born again. And number two, they are satanically deceived. Now just hold that thought because I'm going to come back to it. Let's hasten through the next one. Notice what else they are. Not only are they satanically deceived, but their view of sin is seriously diminished. 
Have you ever noticed that with the world, what we think are cardinal sins is no big deal to them? It really isn't. And, and, and it doesn't weigh heavy upon them at all. And sad but true, it doesn't weigh heavy upon a lot of people who profess to be believers. But hey, if you want to know how big of a deal sin is, no matter how little we may think it is or how grievous we may think it is, all you got to do is look to what it took to cure that sin problem. And you'll know how serious it is. It took the Son of God being nailed to an old rugged cross to take care of this little issue called sin. It is a big deal. Now, notice this list of sin that Paul gives that, you know, is always diminished by those who have been satanically deceived. Now, let me walk through them. And again, hear me. I don't want to lift anyone out of here because they're all serious. But at the same time, you've got to recognize that there are three or four in here who are aggressively on the attack today. And if the church does not stand firm, then we'll be steamrolled by this. Now, standing firm by kindly confronting our culture. So check out these sins. Notice with me this list of sin over which they have a very diminished view. Look in verse number, uh, verse number 9. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. What is that? Well, that's folk who are not married who are acting like they are married. Check out n- number next. Nor idolaters. What are idolaters? Idolaters are not just people who bow down before wooden statues. Idolaters include anybody who values anything else more than God Himself. If something else has a priority in our life, then we're an idolater. It doesn't even have to be a physical thing. It can be a, it can be a recreation. It can be hunting and fishing. It can be John Deere tractors. Uh, it could be... Uh, uh, you fill in the blank. It could be sports. Uh, anything. Anything that has our loyalty and allegiance more than God Almighty, that is an idol. Check out number next. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. What are adulterers? If fornicators are single folk acting like they're married, then adulterers are married folk acting like they're single. Huh? Now, now we have a rash of that today, don't we? I got to. I got to run. I got to resist it. Hey, y'all just know. Here's one time y'all mark it down. My editor came into effect, all right? (laughs) I just edited a thought on the fly. So so you know I can do it if I have to. All right, number next, and here's where I'm not liking this. New American Standard translates this Greek word as effeminate. The Greek word behind it is malakos. And you know what malakos means? In classical Greek, malakos means Anything that's soft. That's soft. And you know what he's talking about here in this context? He's talking about men who act like women. Soft. Now, you guys know that I've got... Man, it's amazing what God has done, but I've got friends around the world. And I've got some friends who are scholars and they're involved in seminaries in foreign countries. And I had a conversation with one of my scholarly friends who is the head of a seminary in another country that day talking about a research project that's going on in their seminary. I'm talking at the highest level. I'm talking doctoral level research. Here's what he said the subject of the doctoral research is. The feminization of the United States of America. And here's their, 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 their hypothesis. Their hypothesis is that the satanic attack upon the United States of America today is seen in the feminization movement that's taking place. Now look, I'm not talking about women. There is absolutely nothing wrong with biblical womanhood. God bless you, ladies. There is nothing wrong with biblical womanhood There's nothing wrong with biblical manhood. I mean, after all, it's God's invention and everything He does is pretty good, right? 
There's nothing wrong with being a, a, being a woman. There's nothing wrong with being a man. But there's something wrong with being a man and acting like a woman. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Now hear me. This is why I said maybe we not, ought not put this one out on the airwaves. Because this is not very popular. But my buddy down there is telling me that they are beginning to see how over the generations men in the United States have become confused in their gender role and they're acting more like women than women are. And can I just say to you that I can see it myself? This same friend told me that they're looking at, at some of the things that what used to happen in boyhood and, and how young men were groomed from adolescence all the way to manhood. And he said, for example, he said a generation ago or two generations ago, this is what boys did. He said boys would go buy an old junk motorcycle for, for 5 or $10. They'd pull it into the garage or they'd go buy an old ragged out uh, uh, a car for $100, pull it into the garage, not knowing anything about mechanics, they would take that thing apart and they would fix it and put a little money in it and they would have something valuable and along the process they learned how to become men. But he said today boys are not doing that. He said here's what boys are doing today. And we know this true because we know about what's called bands today. Y'all ever heard of bands? A band is, is the word that, that scholars are using that doesn't... It's a male who's not a boy nor a man. He's a band. And my friend says, here's what we're finding. He said, young men are not on a journey toward manhood anymore. Today they're sitting around playing video games endlessly. And he said they're ending up being 35, 36 years old, living in their parents' apartment and can't hold down a good job and don't know how to be a man. And man, I want to tell you, this is a guy who's looking at the United States from the outside in. These guys who are doing doctoral research over there have never even been to the United States and they're reading us like a book. I mean, look, just last week, Heather and I, we were, we were uptown doing something. I thought, let's go, to, let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings. I love Buffalo Wild Wings. That's a man's joint, huh? So we went into Buffalo Wild Wings, Jerry. And I sat down there, got me one of them high tops, you know, because I, I like being high where I can see all around me. And I got looking around me, and I was, I was almost threatened because there was nothing in there but bands. They were all sitting there with their little computer stuff out with sweet drinks in front of them with an umbrella in it. You know what I'm talking about? And they were all shouting in a high voice, in a high-pitched voice at this kickball tournament that was on TV. Uh, what's that kickball thing called? Uh, yeah, in Qatar. What is it? World Cup. Yeah. I wanted to stand up and say, Dear God, somebody put on a helmet and pads and hit somebody so hard it turns their jock strap inside out. Then I'll watch it. Come on. Bunch of men running around playing football in long socks and faking every time somebody gets close to them. And they were taking that thing seriously. I thought, Where am I? I got looking around the room. There was one old boy in there sitting at another high top and he was watching a rerun of a 1980's Philadelphia Eagle football game drinking a long neck Budweiser and I felt like ripping my shirt off and going over and chest bumping him and saying thank you for being a man huh I mean dear God I walked out of that place and I told Heather I gotta get home and get on my bulldozer baby I gotta suck in some diesel smoke because I'm feeling like I want to go get a pedicure right now. <laughs> Good God. I mean, I'm telling you, that's where we're going. Boys acting like a bunch of girls. Can I paraphrase a Waylon Jennings song's mamas? No, I want to reverse that. Mamas, don't let your cowboys grow up to be babies. Huh? <laughs> well, kindly confronting our culture. 
I debated whether or not to even do this, but I think I am. Hey, roll that beautiful bean footage. I want you to listen to what the lieutenant governor of North Carolina said the other day. Here's something else I'm not supposed to say. Ain't but two genders. Two genders. Ain't nothing but men and women. And I can already see WRL out there. They got their licking their pencils around, trying to write fierce as they can. Get every word of this here. Get every word of this. You can go to the doctor and get cut up. You can go down to the dress shop and get made up. You can go down there and get drugged up. But at the end of the day, you were just a drugged up, dressed up, made up, cut up, man or woman. You ain't changed what God put in you, that DNA. You can't transcend God's creation. I don't care how hard you try. The transgender movement in this country, if there's a movement in this country that is demonic and that is full of anti the spirit of antichrist, it is the transgender movement. It's time for grown-ups and time for Christians to start standing up and being unafraid to tell the truth. Come after me if you want to. I don't care. You want my head? Here it is right here. Come on, come get it. I don't care because it's time for us to stand up. And I'm not afraid to stand up and tell the truth about that issue. They're dragging our kids down into the pit of hell, trying to teach them that mess in our schools. Tell you like this, that ain't got no place at no school. Two plus two don't equal transgender. It equals four. We need to get back to teaching them how to read. Instead of teaching them how to go to hell. Yeah, I said it and I mean it. Over the past six months, we have been... You can come after me if you want to. Well, guess what? They did go after him. And just like everybody else, they were trying to get him to resign and walk away because of these comments and he wouldn't. You see what I'm saying is, did you hear him say that it's demonic? Remember I said they're satanically deceived? Here's the deal. Freedom of speech applies to everybody but us. We can't say it even in our churches without ramifications. It's not getting any better. I had a friend who was pretty high up in, the, in, in a government administration. Matter of fact, it was the FAA. He said this, he retired not long ago. He said, when I came to work here, he said, we had to show up in a suit and tie and homosexuality was a deal breaker. Found out you was homosexual, he was fired. He said, now we're showing up in shorts and Karachi sandals and he said, you can be as openly flamingly, uh, flaming homosexual as you want to. He said, I'm retiring today before they make homosexuality mandatory to work here. That's how far we've come. The Supreme Court will hear a case this week about two business people who work in the marriage industry. And they are selling stuff that's geared toward traditional married couples. It's in the Supreme Court right now because they're being forced to sell stuff for all marriages, even same-sex marriages. They're saying, no, wait a minute. What about my free speech? What about my ability and my right to, to, to do what I want to? Well, you can't do it, but they can. T.D. Bank. Any of you familiar with T.D. Bank? T.D. Bank, two weeks ago, set apart a half a million dollars in a scholarship account to help minors with gender reassignment surgery. The money, they said, can be used for legal reasons for defense, for suing your mom and dad, for suing a doctor, and it can be used to cover medical costs. 
the news went out and interviewed one of the higher-ups in TD Bank and the, the, the little interviewer said, has this not cost y'all business? He said, oh, of course it's cost us business, but sometimes you just got to do what's right. They said, have anybody taken advantage of this? Oh, yes, there's been plenty. What is the youngest one? The youngest one has been 11 years old who has had, who has had gender reassignment surgery. Good God in heaven. We don't even let 11-year-olds buy tobacco products at 7-Eleven. And you going to tell me you're standing up for what's right? Paul says that's unrighteousness. Notice what else Paul says as we look at their pitiful condition. Paul says, number one, they're satanically deceived. Number two, their view of sin is seriously diminished. And number three, they have a sad destiny. Check this out. Look, look what Paul says. Make note of this in verse number nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now the kingdom of God has a lot of different meanings in Scripture and context has to decide which one it is. Here Paul is talking about that eschatological kingdom initiated by Christ. They will not be part of it because unrighteousness is not allowed in. Now can I say this to you as well? This list of sin is not a one-time commitment. For instance, if you've had some of these sins perpetrated upon you, this does not apply. These words refer to somebody who is, res who is resolute in a settled lifestyle of sin. It's not about something that happened one time years ago. or It's not about experimenting in college or that type of stuff. It's about people who have an agenda and they're forcing it on other people and just like the governor said, taking it to schools because have you ever noticed one of the things in the Gospels that most of the demonic assaults when Jesus was physically on this planet was on children. And I'm telling you that the closer we get to the second coming of Jesus Christ, the younger we're going to see the satanic assault victims become. And here we have it. How do we kindly confront our culture? Well, by realizing their pitiful condition. And part of their pitiful condition is a sad destiny. Can I ask you a question? What's the only other choice? If they're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven, where are they going to be? That's exactly right. And that's a sad destiny. And hear me, church, these are the people whom God has called us to minister. He put Grace Church in this context and we're called to minister. And it's hard for us to minister to them if we alienate them. So I'm not saying alienate them, but at the same time, we've got to kindly confront and stand firm. Check this out, number next. And this is where I want to spend my time because this is the good part. Man, this, this part right here, I've been dreading it all week to have to, have to preach this. But notice the good part here is in, the, is, is in verse number 11. We kindly confront our culture with the realization of their pitiful condition. But number two, we kindly confront our culture with the reality of our powerful conversion. You know what the best rebuttal you have to this is? The fact that you've been born again. Check it out. Look what Paul says. Verse number 11. I didn't even get to get through the rest of it. I would had to just stop that list of sins. I just got to move on. We'd be in that list for the rest of the time. I just got to move on. Check out verse number 11. Such were. Do you get that? Such were some of you. Son, that's a powerful conversion, is it not? But can I just say this? It is no more difficult for God to save a homosexual than it is for Him to save a good old boy who thinks he's all right. Huh? Because they're both going to the same place. It's no more difficult. It's no big deal for God to save anybody on this list. But notice what He says. Such were some of you. Man, I've always wanted to pastor a church that that could be said about them. Huh? I've always wanted to pastor a church that was filled with people who were former prostitutes, who were former homosexuals, who were former thieves, who were former swindlers, who were former adulterers, because that is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ on full display. It's nothing for Him to save any of these folk. Ain't nobody going so far that the cross can't reach them. It's powerful. And he says, here's how we kindly confront culture. 
with the reality of our powerful conversion. Now look, two things I think included in this verse about our powerful conversion. I think the first thing we must say is this. It was a one-time event that changed you positionally. It changed you. And it was a one-time event. Watch this with me. Look at all of these. Look at all these words. Such were some of you. Right, underline this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now here's what's cool about this. In the original language, these verbs are all in the aorist passive tense. Now, we don't even have an aorist tense in English, so let me explain it to you, alright? Here's what the aorist is. The aorist, I wish I had my board up here because the aorist depicts punctilier action. Something that happens one time and one time only. And it is so significant, it's so powerful that the ramifications of it never completely fade away. They never go away. They're always there. So here's what Paul is saying. You were this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. A one-time occurrence that lasts forever, has ongoing ramifications all the way into eternity future. Now watch this. There's only a few things that have this aorist passive. By the way, it's an aorist passive, Alicia. You know what a passive voice is? Well, let me explain to you. The active voice is this. The active voice is when the subject is doing the action. For example, the man kicked the ball. That's active voice. Passive voice is when the subject is acted upon. So active voice would be the ball was kicked by the man. Now notice when he's talking about salvation here because all three of these aorist passive verbs describe the one-time event of your salvation. When God saved you. It's passive. That means, Alicia, you didn't do it. You weren't the one who initiated it. Salvation is something that was done to you, for you, by Him. There's no other way it can have eternal ramifications. If I do it, it's going to fade away. Son, listen to me. There's a few things in the Bible that have this aorist passive. One happens one time, don't ever need to happen again. And one of them was your salvation. And I want to tell you, there's a problem. When people put church signs up in Bonifay, Florida that say, Christian, don't let your salvation slip. The only way salvation can slip is if you were the active person who saved yourself. But son, if God saved you, it's in the aorist passive form and God has you in the palm of His hand and He will never, ever, ever let you slip. Huh? I mean, come on. What a poor view of God that is. You mean to tell me we've got an all-knowing God who knows everything about me, past, present, and future. He saves me today, but tomorrow He says, No, wait a minute. I didn't know you were going to do that. I'm going to take that salvation right back. I'm telling you what He does. He does one time, and that's good forever. It's aorist, passive. You didn't do it. He did it. Yeah, if I did it, I could lose it. But if He did it, there ain't no danger of that happening. So check out this one-time event. Notice how Paul describes it. Number one, he says this. He says, and here, you can put these in parentheses because this is all different angles of this one-time event that happened to you. Number one, he says, but you were washed. See, you used to be in this list of sin, but something happened to you one time and you were washed. And the root word for that, that, that the word that's translated washed in our English versions is the word, it's the paradigm verb which means to be loosed. L-O-O-S-E-D. So here's what happened in that one time event. The first thing that happened to you is that you were freed from pollution. You're freed. You're freed. You're set free. You are loosed. And somehow this verb over the years has become translated as washed. And I, there's no disjunct here. Because you know what you're doing when you're taking a bath? 
you are loosing yourself from the dirt and grime and stink of the day. Are you not? I mean, have you ever been standing there in the shower, look down, you see all that black stuff around your feet? What is that? That is dirt from which you have just been loosed. Praise God. Huh? And that's the same verb that Paul uses here to describe your salvation. You have been set free. You ever noticed that sin is very enslaving? It'll put you in bondage. But something came along that was more powerful than sin. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. Bump, and there it stands. And that one time event when God called you to Himself in that event, you were washed, i.e. you were freed from pollution. Number next, look what else he says. Not only does he say that you were freed from pollution, but look in verse number 11. Not only were you washed, but here, heiress passive, you were sanctified. Talking about this one-time event, we're not talking here about the ongoing process. Here he's talking about a one-time event. This is why you're different. This is why you no longer find yourself in that catalog of sin and sinners because you were sanctified. Now here's what the word means there. The root word is the word for holy. So here's how we could say it if it was good English. You were holy-fied. You were holy-fied. And you know what the word holy means? It means simply you were set apart. So here's what happened in reality when you were holy-fied. You were you entered a foregone plan. You entered a foregone plan. You see because to be sanctified, to be holified means you're set apart for a special use. You know what that means? And it's not something that God just invented the moment that you were born again. He's had this plan, that's why it's foregone. He's had this plan for you since before the foundation of the world. And yes, He did know you way back then. And He said, look, this little fast-talking, redneck country preacher in Bonifay, Florida, I've got a plan for him, and He said that 10,000 years ago. And in that event, when He called me to Himself, He set me apart and He said, Now I'm going to use Him in this manner. Son, you talk about purpose in life. Hear me. You can't have purpose until you've been holy-fied. Until you've been born again. That's one of the great things about being born again. All of a sudden life has meaning. Life has purpose. And we enter in to God's foregone plan for our life. Check out number next. Not only were we holy-fied, we were freed from pollution. You entered a foregone plan, but check this out. Look, look, look what else he says. You were justified. Now, underline this word, justified, and then go back to verse number 9. You see the word unrighteous? They're the same word. The only thing is, in verse 9, it has an alpha privative in front of it. And any time you put an A in front of a Greek word, it means not. So here's what he's saying. He said, those people are not righteous. But he said, in that event, when God called you to Himself, when you were saved, God righteoused you. He righteoused you. And you see, that's different from being washed. And it's really different from our concept of justified. Because justified can just mean you're exonerated. Justified just means the charges against you are erased. They're no longer there. But can I say to you that innocent people don't go to heaven. Righteous people go to heaven. And you see, that's what God's doing here. He's fulfilling His requirement of righteousness in His people. So here's what He did. He didn't just wipe your sins away. Son, He credited your account with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So here's how I say it. Not only were you freed from pollution, not only did you enter a foregone plan, but you were funded permanently. <laughs> you were funded. Funded with what? Funded with righteousness. And we're not talking about what you've done. Hey, here's cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity says this. Well, I'm a pretty good old boy. I ain't killed nobody. I ain't been with anybody's wife in the past three years. Uh-huh. 
I hadn't lied lately. And I'm not as bad as that guy over there. That's cultural Christianity. Oh, and by the way, I have done some pretty good things. I, I go to church on Easter and Sun uh, on Easter and Christmas. I'm a CEO. Christmas, Easter only. When I go to church, I, I normally try to give five or ten dollars, put it in an offering plate. And that is the cultural Christian's idea of being okay with God. If you've never been born again, you can give your life to be burned at stake. And that is filthy rags before God. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. There's only one who's got righteousness. And His name is Jesus Christ. And here's what happens when you're saved in that one time event. You know what God does? God takes all of the wealth and righteousness that Jesus Christ has and He funds your account. Boop! There you are. And son, listen, you'll never run out. You'll never run out of righteousness. Why? Because it's eternal. It's infinite. And you getting to heaven isn't dependent upon what you've done. It's totally, 100% dependent upon what He has done. And you don't get there based on your own accord. You get there, make no mistake about it, riding the coattail of the only one who's ever made it. And that's Jesus Christ. You're funded. and You don't ever have to worry about being bankrupt if you've been funded with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Here's what that means positionally. Remember I said, I said something happened. It was a one-time event that changed you positionally. I mean, when God looks at you, He doesn't see your sin. You know what He sees? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's your positional standing before God. You stand before God today positionally having been washed, having been sanctified, and having been justified. Your account funded with the righteousness of Christ. Now here's the challenge. That's who you are positionally. That's your inner identity. That's how God sees you. But how do you get to the point where other people see you like that? See, that's a different thing. And that's what Paul talks about in these next few words right here. These next few verses. Check out what he says. He says, number one, that our powerful conversion was a one-time event that changed you positionally. But also, it is an ongoing process that changes you personally. This is where you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And who you are positionally starts bleeding through your personality and people see you as personally washed, sanctified, and justified. Notice how it comes through in this text. Look what Paul says. But you were justified. Here we go. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Underline that word name. Because here's how you're changed personally. How not only God sees you like this, but other people start seeing you like this. How does it take place? It takes place by our dependence on Christ. See the word name? That name means in His character. In His nature. We are fully 100% dependent upon His character. On His righteousness. On His payment for our sin. There's no other way. There's nothing in my repertoire that would commend me to God. So how is it that other people see me as righteous? when I'm completely dependent upon Him. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, as you, have, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How'd you receive Him? By dependence. By faith. And he says, you've had all this. All this is going to come to the surface. What's deep in you is going to come to the surface by your dependence on Him. But number two, look what else he says. This happened to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So number two, we, we, we work what's in us out by our dependence on Christ, and number two, by our fellowship with the Spirit. By walking in the Spirit of God, you become practically and personally what God says you are positionally. But check out number next, and I'm done, because I, this is the most significant part of this passage. Underline this word. 
O-U-R. How is it that you become a change agent? How is it you kindly confront culture? How is it that you become practically what God says you are positionally? And here, here it is. By our involvement in the family. Now, Pastor Richie, where do you see that in that one word? Oh, it's very basic. It's grammar. Because here's the deal. You can't say our unless there's somebody else with you. Are you following me? If you're not in association with somebody else, then you can't use that word because it's a plural possessive. The only thing you can say is my. And if all you're saying is my God then friend, you will never become personally what God says you are positionally. Paul says, in the spirit of our God, who is our? When Paul says our, I tell you who it is. It's an inclusive pronoun which means our. Our. And here's here's the deal. If you've bought into cultural Christianity and cultural Christianity tells you this, oh, I can be all right with God and have nothing to do with church. It's a lie from hell. Everybody who has bought into that has to say, in the spirit of my God. You'd be hard pressed to find that. He's not just my God, He's our God. And here's what Paul's saying by the use of that one little plural pronoun. He's saying if you want to become personally what God says you are positionally, if you want it to be practically worked out in your life, then you've got to be involved in the family. There's no other way. If you can't say our, then you're not on the right track. And you'll never become personally what God says you are positionally. So here's how we close out every Sunday. You know, Grace Church may or may not be the church for you. If it's not, let us know. We'll help you find one that is. But if you're a child of God, you're called to be a change agent in a society that's quickly going downhill. And you are making no difference in the battle if you're not involved in a local church. You count for nothing. So if grace is not the church for you, in the name of everything holy, let us know so we can get you involved in a church where you move the needle a little bit. On the other hand, if grace is the church for you, then we want to know that. Because we want to get you on this path of being a change agent, being salt and light, and becoming personally what God says you are positionally because of something that happened to you one day when you met Jesus Christ. So God's spoken to you today in Jesus' name. You should be faithful to Him. Stand with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, sometimes we don't like it, but nonetheless, we believe it. We accept it as authority, and it is our guide for living. So God, would you help us to be faithful to your word?